Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett, and I'll be with you until 6pm when Dunbar Law takes over the reins. Today we look at the recent history of the Republic of Haiti, the world's oldest black republic. The first meeting of those who have signed and ratified the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was held recently. Associate Professor Tillman Ruff, who was there on the momentous occasion when it was born, will talk about the meeting and the consequences. Dr Binoy Kempmark, looking at India and Israel, two right-wing regimes who practice collective punishment. Another doctor, Dr Tim Anderson, back from two weeks in Cuba, with lots to say about a conference he organised and how Cuba is weathering the storms of economic boycotts and COVID. But first, as always, we find out from Mr Kevin Healy what he thought of the past week. I hope you can stay tuned for the two hours. And don't forget, if you miss any part of the program, there is always the 3CR webpage, 3cr.org.au, where the program streams for a week and the podcast enabling you to listen at any time. But here's Kevin. A week, Jan, listener, when listening this week to the grave threat we face from evil China through our Minister for Train Killing and Being Offensive, Richard Duffer, uh, no, no, that's not his name. Uh, Constable Peter Mauls the bad guys. No, no, sorry, no, no, that's not it either. Damn, I get them mixed up. I'll have to sort that out for us, listener. Although, might I say, haven't we noticed the difference in our rhetoric toward evil China from our new government? Oh, we want a better relationship, but meanwhile, our Socialist Party government agrees with the US of the UN of the US of the world well, let's take it for granted, agrees with that evil China remains a threat and no country should be allowed to build military bases in the Asia-Pacific region. And to ensure no country should be allowed to build military bases in the Asia-Pacific region, our very, very, very close friend, the US, will expand its already huge number of bases in the Asia-Pacific region to prevent the expansion of train killer bases in the Asia-Pacific region. Logic and consistency running riot. The US of Vice Big Supremo Kamala Horrors for Evil China couldn't make it to the Pacific Conference in Fiji, but beamed in that the US would expand its influence through diplomacy as well as in train killing and being offensive, having realised, she said, it has for too long ignored our Pacific friends, as True Blue in the US of calls them. Uh, Kamala, has that realisation anything to do with your attitude to evil China? Perish the thought. No one till you raised it, and might I say I find that question, that inference insulting, offensive, until the thought had not crossed my mind. No, we just realised how much we are concerned for and care about our Pacific friends. Whereas now that you've raised the question, evil China just wants to use these very, very, very close friends of the US of for its own evil purposes. Aren't we lucky to have a close friend like the peace-loving US of, whose sincerity and integrity we so admired, like big supremo Joe Biden capital, a Biden fossil capital over in Saudi Arabia, telling us, I will always stand up for our values, which probably, no indeed, does explain what he was doing there. 
And let's hope war is peace can be further consolidated by paying a tribute to the recently assassinated Japanese ex-Big Supremo by granting his overwhelming wish to remove the pacifist bit of their constitution and allow them to join the train-killing-for-peace spree across the Asia-Pacific. After the hopefully politically assassinated Sri Lankan long-term dictator, the last of the Rajapaka punch no, no longers, fled seeking sanctuary, presumably with most of his country's coffers to see him through, it was said the civil war had ended years ago, which we can be sure would have come as news for a hell of a lot of Tamils. Although there must be no ongoing persecution, because true to was, he refuses to accept they are no proper papers, queue jumping illegal boat people, are refugees. So they must be shattered to see the backs of the Rajapaka punches no longer. We're thrilled to be able to award the Objective Consistency Media Award of the Week to who else? The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin. Congratulations, which for ages has been agreeing with our public health authority, the Chambers of Profits, that we don't need lockdowns or masks or distancing or anything that doesn't let the sundry COVID strains rip, doesn't let us just learn to live with it and die with it, attacking the pejorative Dan government for being too close to the public health health advisers who have no idea what they're talking about and no concern for the Chambers of Profits and their profits. Even though the government has decided to let it rip, and that's working a treat, rip, rip, rip. But this week, when the pejorative Dan government said it would ignore the public health health advice that masks should again be mandated, the very thing Lord Rupert has demanded, the whopping sin then attacked it for not mandating them, attacked it for doing what Lord Rupert has decreed it must do for the health of the economy, the only health that matters. Lord Rupert of whopping, your objective consistency media award of the week is on its way. Let it rip, learn to live and die with has naturally led to thousands living and dying with it, prompting our public health authority, the Chambers of Profits, to provide more advice. Thanks to so many workers being hit and thanks to uh, people not being able to go out and spend as much, it is imperative, they said, that the government must provide lots of, well, lots more of, corporate welfare because their altruistic health advice is working too well with many workers and customers not too well. Thankfully, their wise advice didn't run to taking steps to contain the epidemic and prevent illness and death, just a good corporate welfare handout and problem solved. Indeed, the Federal Minister, Mark Buckalunder, predicted millions could catch COVID before winter's over. Many would die, but thank goodness this didn't require any steps to prevent this happening either. Thank goodness he's listened to the very wise Chamber of Profits health advice. Although, speaking of consistency, listener, caring employers are concerned that casual workers, gig workers, will turn up with COVID because they can't afford not to because they don't have sick leave. The government must meet the caring employers' costs of their isolation. Yet, when evil unions suggest they should receive little crippling conditions like sick leave and holidays and superannuation and other crippling conditions full-time workers enjoy, they tell us that is all taken care of through the fabulous casual rate they receive. So, so these workers should have put aside their sick leave. It's their own bloody fault. 
although only because we know caring employers would never be inconsistent, we'd almost believe there was some slight inconsistency in that argument. To prove there isn't, the Federal Cabinet held a special Saturday get-together to agree with caring employers, but it is the government's responsibility to pay their workers. Not surprisingly, caring employers were glowing in their support of the decision. And the My Word They've Learned Their Lesson Award of the Week to the New South Wales Government after allowing passengers on a Princess cruise ship wrapped with COVID more than two years ago to alight led to a massive spread of COVID back then, just as the fun, fun, fun Princess cruises have resumed taking to our seas again, Another Princess cruiser turned up in Sydney with COVID running riot on board and what a smart move. The New South Wales government has let the passengers loose again without any need for testing or precautions. New South Wales government, your My Word They've Learned Their Lesson Award is on its way. On caring employers, yet another wise, sensible decision by our judiciary in a matter over primotive salt and fat and sugar foods transferring its lazy, avaricious workforce from an hourly rate under their enterprise agreement to salary contracts. The matter involving poor primotive being forced to sack or or sorry, sadly have to let go, a very, very naughty, disobedient worker who had the gall to ask his co-workers about the contracts they were signing, wages and conditions, those sort of things, that were no business of his and broke the company's confidentiality policy. He even showed disrespect by suggesting many workers were unhappy with their contracts, their new wages and conditions, and thus this week the federal court ruled his dismissal was legal and proper, out the door. What a sensible decision. How dare a worker ask other workers about their wages and conditions? The caring employers, human resources managers, see workers are resources, said quite sensibly workers knowing other workers' wages and conditions could lead to conflict and people resigning because they're disgruntled. Employees would not understand the rationale behind the offers, she pointed out. Um, uh, which is? Uh, well, obviously, to, to pay them as little as possible. Yet another wise decision. Wonder if the members of the bench making these decisions are on the same wages and conditions as the primitive salt, sugar, etc. workers. Another threat to economic health remains all these bloody protesters carrying on about fossils being dug up and forests being flattened. Irresponsible, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lots displaying no concern whatever for the welfare of the responsible great corporates who extract and use the fossils and chainsaw the forests. Hopefully draconian but essential penalties like 20,000 plus fines and a year or two in jail might deter these economic vandals, although sadly many of them claim they won't be deterred. In fact, one mob, the Trublawasi Koala Foundation, wants to go even further. It wants land clearing and development banned from all koala habitat areas. One and a half million hectares of forest, 20% of the continent just because they reckon they're a bit endangered. 
For goodness sake, where's their sense of patriotism, of concern for decent law-abiding shareholders? Okay, okay, let's not ignore the koalas, but let's strike a balance. Leave a few trees for them. But don't get between a koala and a lovely bag of lovely, lovely money. Let's not make the chainsawing industry the endangered species. But listener, it gets worse. There's another mob, they're probably all related to each other, who reckon the greater glider is not just endangered, but in danger of extinction. And true to form, they blame the chainsaws and the fossils for raging bushfires they claim are destroying the glider's habitat. For goodness sake, there's still plenty of trees. Okay, there mightn't be the exact trees with hollows gliders live in. The, the long-haired lot use the fact that these trees take years to become suitable for the gliders, but surely, like we've had to adapt to learning to live and die with the pandemic, the gliders can adapt. I mean, we can't expect the chainsaws to adapt, can we? So finally, my advice about these disruptors is, for what it's worth, if the jail term isn't enough, make it life imprisonment and find them trillions. That'll teach them to have some concern for the economy rather than for nebulous rubbish, utter crap, like saving the forests and their ecology or preventing the planet frying to death. Quite simply, we can't afford not to. Good afternoon. And if you'd like to hear more of Kevin, tomorrow morning, 9 o'clock for City Limits. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants, including grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. Haiti, officially the Republic of Haiti, is a country located on the island of Hispaniola in the Greater Antilles Archipelago of the Caribbean Sea, to the east of Cuba and Jamaica, and south of the Bahamas and the Turks and Caicos Islands. It shares the island with the Dominican Republic, three-eighths to be precise. This is the country that Sasha Galizlakakis, journalist, activist and PhD candidate, and I have chosen to feature this month on Tuesday Home Time. Sasha, we always begin with a starting date. What do you have for Haiti? Haiti is one of the most important countries if we're looking at you know the overall historical significance of the country in Latin America and in the world. But it's also one of the most complex ones, so we're going to have to go back a bit further than than we normally do to properly sort of understand Haiti's significance and how Haiti 
has become, you know, one of the poorest, no, it is still the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere and one of the poorest countries on earth today. We'll just very briefly discuss the pre-European peoples of uh, Haiti, because, of course, that's always significant. That's always important. We need to recognise that, you know, their history didn't begin with the European occupation of the island. There was a thriving population of the Taino people on both sides of the island of Hispaniola. So Haiti, of course, today is the western third of the island, and the Dominican Republic is the eastern two-thirds. There were estimates put the population, the pre-European population, at between 750,000 to 1.1 million people. And they were organised into what are called caciques, or chieftains, tribal chieftains, um, across both sides of the island. Most scholars indicate that they were a peaceful and relatively prosperous society for the time. There were, there were paternalistic elements, um, so men were very, very dominant in in Taino society, but of course that, that was also the case for many, many different cultures um, around the world at that time, and of course with the European colonists as well. And they um, occupied the island without any sort of trouble, really. I mean, there was always the occasional war um, between the different caciques, the different chieftains. But really, for several thousand years, there was no major upheaval, no major loss of life or death. Of course, that changes in 1492 when Christopher Columbus arrives in Hispaniola. Now, of course, the island of Hispaniola is the first place that the Spaniards arrive in. That's their first contact with the so-called New World, the Americas, as they become uh, known to the Europeans. And Columbus leaves a few dozen settlers to establish the settlement of La Navidad on the Haitian side of the island. He ends up putting a lot more time and effort into the what would become the Dominican Republic. It's a lot easier to colonise. There are more resources at the time. But the Haitian side is a bit more difficult. It's a very mountainous country. In fact, the name Haiti, which will eventually um, be adopted, comes from the Taino word Haiti, which means the land of tall mountains, which, of course, refers to the very, very difficult and mountainous interior of the island or of that part of the island. Now, when Columbus returns a year later to this settlement, La Navidad, he finds that it's been abandoned, it's in ruins, uh, and all the Spaniards have perished. So this just gives an indication of how difficult the colonial process, at least at first, was for the Spanish. Now, eventually, of course, Spain does lay claim to the entire island. Santo Domingo is established in 1496 on the other side of the island, the Dominican Republic side. Um, that is, of course, the capital of the Dominican Republic today. And the Spanish preside over the genocide of the island's indigenous inhabitants. This follows a very similar pattern to what happened in Mexico, Peru, Cuba, all across the Americas when the Spanish invade. About 90% of the indigenous population dies within a decade due to violence, due to the imposition of slavery, and of course disease, which is also the very well-known factor leading to the demise of the indigenous peoples. So it's an absolutely horrific time for the indigenous population, the Taino uh, caciques. Uh, historians have now actually been able to uncover some of the personal diaries and records of some of these conquistadors on Hispaniola, and in particular on the Haitian side of the island. And one of these diary entries actually suggests that a lot of the indigenous people on the Haitian side of the island, so in those caciques, are committed collective suicide because of how horrific the Spanish colonial process was on their people. They would, rather, they, they would rather kill themselves and their children than let them be subject to colonial rules. So that just gives, a, I think that just gives an indication of just how terrible 
colonialism was across Hispaniola, but particularly also on the Haitian side of the island. Now, the Spanish don't actually retain a lot of interest in Haiti um, or the Haitian side of the island uh, because they then discover all of the gold and the silver in Mexico and Peru, so the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire chiefly. They do establish sort of capital on the Haitian side called Deguana, but it's destroyed three times by pirates, um, which were endemic around that part of Haiti. So as we can see again, the Spanish are having real trouble actually keeping any sort of proper foothold on that side of the island. Also because, of course, Spain wasn't paying enough attention to Haiti at the time, uh, a lot of pirates and a lot of other European powers were taking advantage of that to loot Spanish ships around Haiti, to raid settlements on the Haitian side of the island throughout the 16th and the 17th centuries. Um, in particular, this issue of pirates was very, very serious uh, around Haiti. So, you know, we often hear about uh, the pirates of the Caribbean, which, of course, was a phenomenon, and it was particularly concentrated, actually, around Haiti. So Tortuga, which became a very well-known pirate haven, is today within Haiti's national territory. It's an island just off the north coast. Uh, and that was actually ruled by a pirate council outside of Spanish control. The Spanish were unable to actually dislodge them, only the French later on. Uh, and in particular, Dutch pirates targeted the Haitian side of Hispaniola uh, because they were also revolting against Spain in mainland Europe. They were revolting against Spanish control of the Netherlands. So there was a particular enmity between those two sides. And the Spanish would then discover that a lot of their settlers on the Haitian side of Hispaniola were trading with these Dutch pirates and with Dutch commercial vessels. So what the Spanish do, which ends up being the nail in the coffin for this sort of failed colonial venture, is they relocate the entire population of the Haitian side of the island into uh, the Dominican Republic side, or what would become the Dominican Republic. You know, there's a massive amount of upheaval. It ends up being called Las Devastaciones, the Devastations. This happens in 1605. Um, there's, of course, not enough food or water or infrastructure to support this massive influx of forced refugees. And we have tens of thousands of Spanish settlers just dying. So by this point, the island is depopulated. Spain hasn't built up its defences properly. We have British and Dutch and eventually French ships preying on commercial shipping around the Haitian side of the island of Hispaniola. And by 1697, Spain cedes control of Haiti to the French. The French had had their eye on that half of the island for quite some time. They were very, very interested in the potential that it held for sugar planting. Now, of course, the Spanish had never tried this because they were focused on them, the mainland colonies and the gold and the silver that was coming out of the Americas. So in 1697, Hispaniola is officially divided and we have Santo Domingo, which is the Spanish-controlled eastern portion of the island, and Saint-Domingue, which is the French side, which becomes later, of course, Haiti. The French established a number of settlements in Haiti far more successfully. In 1749, Port-au-Prince, the capital of Haiti today, is founded. Um, there's still a lot of issues. There were two earthquakes and tsunamis throughout the 1750s, and close to 50,000 people died. So it was by no means smooth sailing for the French colonists either. But they do turn 
uh, the island economically for, col- for the colonial elite into a stunning economic success through sugar planting. So the island is perfect temperature-wise, climate-wise and soil-wise uh, for the growth of sugar. And by the mid to late 1700s, uh, Haiti becomes not only the richest colony in the world, but the richest place on earth in that time period. So unimaginable levels of wealth were being produced by the Haitian sugar planting elite. Of course, as is well known, but often, often I don't think it's appreciated just how important the slave labour of African slaves was to the success of the sugar planting economy. So by the 1780s, Haiti accounted for one third of the entire global slave trade. That's an absolutely horrendous number of African slaves being ripped from their homes, chiefly in the Congo and in what is what was called the Gold Coast, so around Ghana and Togo and Dahomey. Um, they were ripped from their homes and taken to the New World and forced to toil under French rule as slaves. And the entire wealth of Haiti at the time, and by extension, the entire wealth of France at the time and the French Empire was entirely based upon the backbreaking labour of this slave community. It does come to show by the late 1780s, there were 800,000 slaves in Haiti working under a population from Europe, a French population, of just 32,000 people. So there's a huge demographic imbalance in Haiti between those that are calling the shots and that are uh, exerting control over the slave population and the slaves themselves. And this is, of course, going to have massive ramifications in a few years after the late 1780s, actually. Now, of course, slavery around the world was very, very terrible and very violent, but the French were particularly cruel to their slave population in Haiti. And we actually have the personal um, memoirs, records of Henry Christophe, who was one of the revolutionary leaders of the Haitian Revolution. And he was a slave himself for quite some time, and he describes in pretty gruesome detail some of the torture methods that were used by French colonists. I'm not going to tell, of course, all of them, but I think it's important to highlight just how inhumane and cruel the French colonists were to the slave population in Haiti. Henry Christophe describes uh, the crucifixion of slaves that attempted to run away or that were disobedient to their masters. Waterboarding was um, used widely by the French colonial elite, lashing the backs of slaves and leaving them on anthills so the ants would then start eating and infecting the open wounds. And also dunking slaves in boiling vats of cane syrup uh, were just some of the many different torture methods used by the French colonists. So it just shows how savage really is the word we should use to describe the Europeans and their approach to relations with their slave community it was absolutely dehumanizing and inhumane. But of course, that was how they justified their control of the colony. And that was, of course, how they maintained the fear that was necessary to keep the sugar economy um, producing those unimaginable levels of wealth for the colonial elite and the French metropolis back on the mainland in Europe. Interestingly as well, and this is also critical, so apart from you know all of that hatred and discontent that was bubbling up amongst the slave population, Saint-Domingue also had the largest population of free people of colour. Now, these were people that had either been born to a French man and often it was an African slave concubine, um, so they were entitled to eventually become free people of colour because of their part French blood, or some people also managed to 
pay their way or buy their way out of slavery in very rare cases. So these so-called free people of colour were able to own land. They they were actually involved in, for example, sugar planting, coffee planting, and even even slavery itself, which is quite interesting, also quite sad, um, of course, that you have free people of colour also partaking in the slave trade. Um, but they come to occupy quite a significant part of the colonial economy in Saint-Domingue. As I said, they were able to exercise some of the rights enjoyed by the French population themselves. But of course, in the 1780s, the French planter elite are petitioning the French government to uh, restrict these rights. They're very jealous of the fact that these free people of colour are making inroads into the colonial economy. And the French government uh, implements discriminatory policy against free people of colour, withdraws their rights or their privileges of participation in, for example, a lot of the most lucrative coffee plantations and sugar plantations. And the free people of colour grow disillusioned and angered by the French elite, just as the slaves were. Um, so we can see all of these contradictions in the colonial economy in Saint-Domingue reaching a fever pitch. By 1789, of course, we have the French Revolution in mainland France itself. So the overthrow of the monarchy, um, the National Assembly implements the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. So this is this so sort of attempt to realise the French vision of the French Revolution of fraternity and equality. Now, of course, the Haitians... The free people of colour and the slaves are confused as it doesn't apply to them. It doesn't apply to free people of colour and it doesn't apply to the slave population. But they are both, under French law, parts of France. Um, so there's this great sort of confusion, disillusionment and anger um, that even the French Revolution at this time is not taking the necessary step of recognising racial equality uh, and abolishing slavery. And, you know, the fact that these revolutionary ideas are taking root, uh, but they're not being applied to Haiti, increases the activism of particularly the free people of colour who, generally speaking, have access to some form of education um, and are able to sort of lobby the new National Assembly or they're able to sort of um, engage in some sort of prominent activism in Saint-Domingue. And in particular, we have Vincent Auge, who's a free person of colour, and he actually goes to France and petitions the French lawmakers to abolish slavery and to recognise the rights of the Haitian people, um, just the same as the French population. So he waits several months and he's actually just straight out ignored by the National Assembly. So he leads an uprising on Haiti uh, against the French administration. It's unsuccessful, ultimately. He flees to the Spanish side of the island, uh, but the Spanish uh, end up capturing him and returning him to France, where he's sent to jail and eventually he's executed. Again, this is just one example of many of these sorts of um, uprisings that are taking place, either led by free people of colour or, in some rare cases, led by runaway slaves. Now, of course, there were maroon communities developing. Um, so just very briefly, maroon runaway slaves that established communities in the mountains or in the forests of the interior of Haiti, and they essentially hide from colonial society and, and essentially establish their own sort of society, their own sort of government uh, that's free from colonial rule. Now, they were hunted by the French, but they were very, very successful at times at establishing these sorts of autonomous zones in the interior. They also lead revolts during this time against the French colonial administration. And just a few years later, in 1791, we have a pivotal moment. 1791 is, of course, the period or the, the year that is recognised as being the start of the Haitian Revolution. So the French government in that year agreed to grant citizenship to the free people of colour. So they passed that as law in the National Assembly. 
but the slavers on Saint-Domingue ignore Paris. So they ignore the application of that new law and they continue to govern and mistreat both the free people of colour and the slaves as they had for over a century. This escalates into full-scale bloodshed. So not only the free people of colour, but the slaves begin attacking plantations. They begin accosting French uh, planters in the street. And Saint-Domingue is very quickly falling apart. So the race and the class tensions finally beginning to work against the French rather than for them in cementing their control. Now, as I was saying, there were a number of revolts, but the most notable was at Bois Cayman in the far north. Now, this was led by a Hungan, so that's uh, essentially a voodoo shaman, a voodoo religious leader. Now, voodoo, of course, was a fascinating religion that emerged in Haiti that is a, a syncretic combination of, uh, of Christianity and of African religions that were transported across the Atlantic from those parts of Western Africa and Central Africa, um, and it was it was a means of resistance. It was a means of resisting the the cultural and the theological domination of the Europeans, and often of organising resistance as well, because they had this whole secret language and secret sort of series of codes to discuss different projects that these sort of um, underground groups were undertaking, whether it be an insurrection or a way of supporting slaves that were attempting to revolt, that the French couldn't understand. So it was done in African languages. It was um, often injected into rituals, and the French couldn't actually understand these slaves and these voodoo practitioners uh, when they were engaging in these in these rituals that were actually a form of really really interesting and really quite spirited resistance. The discussion today with... Journalist, PhD student Sasha Gillies Lukakis is the Republic of Haiti. Now, this Hungan, his name was Duffy Buchmann, he holds a ceremony to rally the slaves against the French. And this is critical because there is no involvement of the free people of colour. This is a purely grassroots slave led uprising against the French. So, in less than 10 days, over 100,000 slaves out of 800,000 have revolted. In less than 10 days, they've taken the entire northern portion of Haiti um, from French control. They destroy 200 plantations. So, you know, massive amounts of damage to the French colonial economy. Entire empires are brought down. I'm talking about sugar empires, coffee empires, um, are destroyed overnight by these slaves. They control over one third of Haiti within two weeks of this of this revolt, this insurrection beginning. Now, throughout this time, the free people of colour are still calling for Paris to demand their rights, to, to respect their rights, sorry, to demand respect for their rights. And France, you know, witnessing this really quite radical slave revolt, consents and says that the free people of colour have the same rights as the French, but, but of course still the, the slaves aren't included in this new legislation. So Britain and Spain take advantage of France's inaction and they decide to stake their claim on the colony. So they actually aid the rebels. It's a very uneasy alliance, so they're supporting this slave revolt pretty much just because it's in opposition to France. In fact, the the British uh, during the 1790s actually attempt to conquer Haiti and do a sort of backstab, but the slaves actually drive them out of the island. So, you know, this was a very sort of quite callous, opportunistic ploy by Spain and Britain to try and defeat France and sort of destroy France's colonial economy, but also to potentially uh, replace them as the colonial masters of Haiti. Now, thankfully, that fails. And by 1793, France sees the writing on the wall and slavery is abolished in France. So the National Assembly actually abolishes slavery across France's colonies, at least um, officially. And by 1798, they had been driven 
from Haiti. So this is really seen, 1798 is seen as the first, the major victory of the slave revolt. The free people of color have become involved by this point in coordinating the slave uprisings and Spain and Britain and France have been largely expelled from the territory. During that period of the revolts of the the free, the people of colour and the slaves, did they get any support from the other side of the island, from Santo Domenico? Yeah, so this is, this is a good question because they actually did, because of course Santo Domingo was a Spanish colony. So when slaves and the free people of colour began their uprising, uh, as I said before, Britain and Spain were very interested in supporting that revolt because they wanted to see France's fortunes descend even further. Uh, they wanted to uh, cripple France's economy, and of course an excellent way of doing that was targeting the sugar colony in Saint-Domingue. What we had was a very interesting phenomenon where the Spanish were actually sending, sending supplies and money and food across the border to support the slaves and to support the free people of colour, which was a very opportunistic and calculated move because they wanted the slaves to defeat uh, the French colonists. But, you know, we do, yeah, we do have to acknowledge that, yes, they did. They did receive help from across the border in Santo Domingo. Now, much like the British, the Spanish did later make a play for greater control uh, of Haiti. They did invade very briefly. They sent, they more so just tested the waters. It wasn't like the British that actually sent an expeditionary force. Spanish sort of just tried to occupy a few of the border towns, but they were very quickly driven out and they didn't actually have really any sort of proper funding or the necessary support networks to make that viable. But they did receive help from Spain at the time. Can I bring you to Haiti as the world's oldest black republic and one of the oldest in the Western Hemisphere? What was the period leading up to that and what did it actually mean? As, as I was saying before, we, we sort of have the defeat of Haiti's external enemies or what would become Haiti. And in that year, it, you know, it becomes very clear or it became clear throughout the 1790s that Toussaint Louverture was undisputably uh, the mastermind or behind the slaves and the free people of colour's military victory against the French and the British and the Spanish. Now, Toussaint Louverture was, uh, he was originally a slave who had become a free person of colour. He had essentially worked his way out of it. He was not a... What, what they would call in France um, a mixed race person. He was purely, he was a slave from, um, from African parents. He enshrined within the Haitian constitution, not only the French revolutionary principles that had been um, developed and, and adopted in mainland France, but very, very critically, the notion and the concept of racial equality. So he said that every single man and woman was equal under the law, that their, that slavery or, or any sort of practice that subjugates one group of people to another because of racial reason, reasons or so-called biological reasons was absolutely unconscionable and intolerable. He, by doing this, made Haiti an incredibly powerful symbol. Not only, not only a symbol, but an incredibly powerful example for the rest of the world at this time. As you said, Haiti is the oldest and the first free Black Republic, and it is the oldest and the only successful slave-led republic in history. This is remarkable in a number of senses, and, and I would actually say, out of all the revolutions that have occurred throughout history, this is a personal opinion, scholars have debated this, but out of, uh, out of all the revolutions throughout history, I would say the Haitian Revolution is, is undoubtedly one of the most significant in history, because this proved decisively 
particularly at a time when the Europeans were using this idea of racial superiority to justify their violent expansion and their violent exploitation of the rest of the world, Haiti proved them wrong. Haiti singularly proved them wrong. Haiti proved that that slave populations could outsmart the Europeans, that they were militarily superior to the Europeans, and that they were morally superior to the Europeans. You know, the, the mere fact that that notion of racial inequality was included in the Haitian constitution proves that the Haitian Republic had a moral advantage, a decisive moral advantage over any sort of European project or any European claim to Haiti or to any other part of the world. So this is really, really significant. And it also proved, of course, to other slave colonies that it was possible to resist the Europeans and do so successfully. Now, of course, the terrible part of this is that Haiti suffered as a result of this insubordination. Haiti was hated, was loathed by the European powers, by all the European powers, the French, the British, the Spanish, the Dutch, and of course, by the emerging American Revolution. They were despised by all of them because this, of course, this island single-handedly undermined the entire project of slavery, which of course was the backbone of European and North American economic growth. Haiti was dangerous. That's the significance as well of the Haitian Revolution, which is really, really important to note. This is also manifested in the fact that in 1802, Napoleon invades Haiti. He tries to reclaim Haiti. So he's he's also begun his wars in Europe against the monarchies of Europe, but he also wants to resurrect this part of the French Empire. He wants to restore France's economic prospects. So Louverture, of course, and his ally, Henry Christophe, who you mentioned a bit earlier, they refuse, of course, to entertain this idea of French rule being reinstated. And Napoleon invades and begins quite a brutal occupation. Uh, but it only lasts a few months because, of course, the Haitians have now tasted freedom. They were in the process of building their own country. And they know that the French are going to attempt to reinstate slavery. And they will never, ever entertain that, that notion, ever. In spite of the fact that they do expel Napoleon by 1803, Louverture does end up being captured by the French and is sent to jail and he dies in the Jura Mountains in prison in France. But as I said, Napoleon is expelled and we have three of the other key revolutionary leaders essentially taking over power in Haiti. Now they are Dessalines, Petion and Christophe. So these were all very, very key members of the revolutionary struggle in the 1790s. They end up agreeing that Dessalines will become the president of Haiti. And in 1804, he officially declares the Republic of Haiti. This is really the official creation of Haiti as an independent republic. Um, it had operated as one really since 1798. But this is, according to the history books and according to Haitian legislation, the year when the Haitian Republic actually officially comes into being. I was talking about the immense importance of the Haitian Revolution, but they did have their work cut out for them. So, of course, over a decade of essentially total war in Haiti, the economy had been devastated. Most of the plantations were either in ruin or they'd been totally destroyed. What little infrastructure there was was also largely ruined. All the major world powers and surrounding powers were hostile to Haiti, and they all wanted to see Haiti destroyed for having the goal to resist European rule and the European world order. So Dessalines, as president, he takes drastic measures to save the Haitian economy. So he reinstates the plantation system as the backbone of um, Haiti's economy. Of course, slavery is not 
is not a thing anymore in terms of the basic economic unit of Haiti. Um, sugar and co coffee becomes the economic lifeline of Haiti again. He creates what is called the fermage system. This involves all, all the plantations being owned by the state and the workers who till the land live in accommodation on that land provided by the government. And in quite a radical step, they collectively keep 25% of the profits produced by that plantation. This is actually quite a radical experiment. This is actually that sort of legislation and that sort of economic structure for the plantation economy is even more radical than a lot of the ways land is organised today. The fact that the state supports the workers, ensures that they can live on their land, and then gives them 25% of the profit that they can then collectively share. That's quite a significant step in in the right direction in terms of establishing a more uh, egalitarian society. Now, Dessalines is also an intensely anti-French individual. He, he hates the French for what they did to Haiti, and he undertakes a purge of the French population after 1804. So a lot of French people are killed by the Haitian authorities during these first few years of Dessalines' rule. He permits doctors and other sort of vital professions, so French people that have um, a sort of necessary profession, he allows them to stay because, of course, most Haitians, because of French rule, are illiterate and there's, you know, there's no sort of tertiary education to speak of yet. There's no national university that the French established, so they do need to keep some French people with the necessary qualifications on board. Dessalines is also a very, very paranoid individual. He funds the military very, very heavily. He's conscious of the fact that the Europeans could invade at any moment. He's very preemptive about this. He thinks that, you know, people are constantly out to crush the Republic. It's not an unfounded sentiment. You know, the, the European powers were conspiring, you know, since Haiti's independence. They have been conspiring at various points to undermine the Republic. And in fact, they did begin, particularly the British and the Spanish, they were financing a rebellion in the south of Haiti. So Haiti's regional differences are quite pronounced, not in terms of ethnicity or, or culture, but just in terms of allegiance to different leaders from the revolution. There were very different, there were very sort of fixed groups in the north and in the centre and in the south. And the Europeans begin funding a rebellion in the south of the island against Dessalines. Dessalines musters his army in 1806 to crush this rebellion, but he ends up being assassinated en route. There, there is very tangible evidence here of the Europeans interfering. And what happens is Christophe, Henry Christophe and Petion, the other two generals that had helped expel Napoleon, they end up taking over. So Christophe becomes the president of the Republic and Petion becomes the head of the Senate. Um, now, unfortunately, these two rarely saw eye to eye. Christophe attempts to uh, implement some pretty sweeping legislation to cement his power and the power of his support base in the north. Uh, but Petion, as head of the Senate, is able to block a lot of that legislation and those decrees. So we then have Christophe invading the south. So he invades Petion, who is based in the south. And what we have is a bit of a stalemate. Christophe then withdraws to the north of the country. Pition remains in the south. And Haiti is actually divided into two countries for about six years, which is quite an interesting arrangement to have. So we have Henry Christophe establishing uh, the northern kingdom of Haiti. He declares himself king. Uh, and in the south, Pition establishes a republic under his own rule. It's at this point that a lot of historians, Western historians who have studied the Haitian Revolution, or make the claim that Haiti 
the Haitian Revolution and the Haitian project was a failure. Now, I would like to say that this is a very, very condescending way of interpreting the Haitian Revolution and of looking at the Haitian Revolution. It completely ignores the immense challenges that the Haitian revolutionaries had to face and had to overcome in the aftermath of the revolution. It ignores the intense external pressures applied by the Europeans and later the North Americans. But these two countries that emerge in the North and the South are actually very, very interesting case studies that I think disprove that idea that the Haitian Revolution was a failure. Because if we actually look at what they did for the time, it's actually quite remarkable. The Northern Kingdom under Christophe was easily the more controversial of the two. Um, Christophe was a very sort of flamboyant individual. He was prone to constructing large monuments. Um, he built a huge citadel in the mountains. It's actually, um, for the few tourists that go to Haiti today often like to visit it. It's a very beautiful building, sort of set amid the giant, like the verdant mountain, mountainous interior of Haiti. He supported the, the Haitian military, of course, to cement his own power base. The key point about Christophe's rule is that he made the fromage system, so that, plant, that state-run plantation system, work very, very well. So the economy thrived, it reached 80% of pre-revolutionary production. So it actually became quite a wealthy colony. And Christophe did use that to begin a, an education campaign to modernise the country. So he actually reduced illiteracy substantially. That, that was a, an incredibly positive step and, of course, trickled down to the poorest form of slave, which was really, really important too. But, of course, this was accompanied by the fact that he was also, Christophe was a very brutal ruler and he did not tolerate any form of dissent. Treatment of dissenters was very, very brutal. And the Southern Republic, similarly, was not as flamboyant, but the, the Pétion administration implemented land redistribution to compensate former soldiers and cane cutters and peasants. Now, this is perhaps the first example of modern land redistribution in any sort of sense. So this is, again, really, really critical. Again, this proves this idea that the Haitian Revolution was a failure. Clearly, these two countries, and particularly the Southern Kingdom as well, were actually working in the interests, at least to a degree, of Haiti's poorest. Now, in the South, most Haitians relied on subsistence farming, so they were completely disconnected from the global economy. But that also meant there was very little malnutrition um, because each Haitian family sort of operated at that very basic subsistence unit, did very little else. So, you know, while the, the economy at a national level in the European sense was virtually non-existent, would have been considered dire, people lived relatively fine in spite of the harsh conditions and the poverty. People didn't starve in the South. This is really, really critical. These are both very interesting experiments in post-revolutionary leadership. Sasha, how did this split fit with the new constitution? This is quite interesting because, of course, Haiti was described as a unitary republic in the constitution that Louverture promulgated in the late 1790s. Now, of course, the division of Haiti into these two countries violated the constitution, to be blunt. And do make sure you're listening next week for part two of Sasha Gillies Lukakis talking about the recent history of the Republic of Haiti. Hello, this is Dan Salton, and you're listening to 3CR Blackfellow Radio, Melbourne.
online and in cinema. Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July. Canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. The first meeting of the state parties on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, the 2022 Vienna Conference, was held last month. 83 governments attended to further implement and develop the treaty banning nuclear weapons and in welcome move, Australia sent an observer. Speaking with Tillman Ralph, Honorary Senior Research Fellow at Melbourne University, a co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, which was awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 1985, and co-founder and founding International and Australian Chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which was also awarded a Nobel Peace Prize, and also join us during the interview. We hear from Alfonso, and I'll explain that more at the end of the interview. Tillman, we go back to 2017 at the UN in New York, when this treaty we're going to be talking about today was born. You were there, and I'm sure you'll remember the elation emanating from the conclusion of that meeting. As long as I have a brain that works to ever forget that day, Jan, it was, uh, yeah, it was such a highlight to have two-thirds of the world's nations, 122 to 1, uh, with one abstention, vote to adopt this historic treaty that broke new ground in a whole lot of respects. The first treaty to comprehensively ban nuclear weapons, the first treaty to provide for victim assistance and environmental remediation for people in areas affected by nuclear weapons use testing, the first treaty to provide a pathway for all states with or without nuclear weapons to actually eliminate nuclear weapons. Um, so it was really a historic day. Well, it did enter into legal force back in January last year. This meeting in Vienna, it's the first time governments have gathered to decide how to promote and implement the treaty. There were 83 countries represented. Where were the rest of the 122 that voted on that day? The treaty at the moment has um, 86 states that have signed it and 65 that have ratified it. So when a country has ratified a treaty, and this may be different for different treaties because it's stipulated within the treaty when it enters into legal force. But basically, a country ratifying a treaty means that it's now in a position to fully comply with its obligations under the treaty. It's got all of its domestic legislation and policies and ducks in a row to be able to accept the obligations of the treaty. And ratification, it enters into force for that country, for this treaty and for many of them, 90 days after that. So... Only those countries are officially there as states parties to the treaty with voting rights. But every nation, because this is the United Nations Treaty and um, the depositories, the UN Secretary General, it's a conference that was run by the United Nations. Every country is invited. So other states 
that have signed the treaty and those that haven't, or those that have ratified it recently, you know, less than 90 days ago, uh, they attend as observers. Given that it was in Vienna, where not every country is represented, there's more delegations in New York, given COVID, uh, given Russian invasion of Ukraine, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on that, that means not every country turns up. But um, we were really pleased with the number. Almost all of those who ratified turned up. And a significant number of others, observers, including four NATO members, so Norway, Germany, Belgium and Netherlands. And that's particularly significant because three of those, uh, all of those except Norway, actually have US nuclear weapons stationed on their territory. So for them to participate as observers to seriously engage with this treaty in a positive and constructive way, given that the treaty is now here and is international law, it's not going away, was an important development. Finland and Sweden, almost NATO members, NATO members in formation, I guess, were also there, as was Switzerland, and pleasingly, as was Australia, with the new government. Uh, the Labor Party in opposition had called on the Morrison government to attend this treaty, so it would have been consistent now not to attend. So Australia was represented as well by a a delegation of foreign affairs officials from Vienna and Canberra and, and headed by Susan Templeman, MP for the Blue Mountains area in New South Wales. What role or what can an observer do in a situation like this? Because this, of the way this treaty works, it's unfortunately, this is the best that the states that don't actually own the weapons can do. You know, they can't eliminate, unfortunately, the weapons that they don't own. So what can they do? Well, they... A lot of this is about a normative effect, trying to strengthen the rejection of nuclear weapons from a sort of moral and legal basis with a firm legal underpinning of, of this treaty. So a lot of it's about trying to encourage uh, the stigmatisation of nuclear weapons, encourage uh, more states to join the treaty, set up processes for states to join the treaty and eliminate nuclear weapons, strengthen safeguards and work on environmental remediation and, and assistance for victims of nuclear weapons uh, use and testing. All of the things that they can do without being able to eliminate the weapons. So for observer states, it shows the importance and legitimacy of the treaty for them to be there. It's, it's now a part of the international legal architecture around nuclear weapons issues. It's important for states that are serious about disarmament and non-proliferation to, to be there, to engage with, with that process, even if they haven't joined it yet. Hopefully it's a step on the way for a number of them, particularly Australia, a step on the way to signing and ratifying the treaty. It means that they're in the room, they hear everything that goes on, they receive all the documentation, they can submit working papers, they can make statements. They can basically do everything apart from vote. It is a significant step and it's certainly not something for Australia that we would have seen under the previous government. Were you aware leading up to this conference that Australia would be there? The government is very new and, and it's been very busy. We were certainly extremely hopeful that Australia would attend and would have been very disappointed had, had Australia not sent a delegation. It wasn't actually confirmed though that Australia would do that and who was going until you know, just the weekend before the meeting. But that's fine. It was really important that Australia was there uh, in the room. And a lot of the 
considerations that the Labor Party policy and its national policy platform that commits Labor and government to sign and ratify this treaty. A lot of the things that were, that are listed as considerations in that policy about the policies, how it relates to the Non-Proliferation Treaty, which many, including Australia, regard as the, the sort of core treaty in the nuclear weapons area, how it approaches the issue of verifying a disarmament, how it will work for getting all countries on board. Those were exactly the issues that generated the most discussion and they were a subject of, of ongoing work now that the meeting's finished in the period before the next meeting of states parties at the end of next year in New York. Fully expecting Australia to go would have been very disappointed if not, but it's actually good that that happened. Now, there were a couple of other conferences prior to the big one, starting on the 18th leading up to the 20th. What were they involved with? Yes, it was... Also, I mean, the other significance of the meeting, I guess, is that it was the first sort of multilateral meeting, so involving many nations, relating to nuclear weapons since the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. So it provided, you know, an important opportunity to talk about that. So it was also preceded by two other events. The first was an ICA civil society forum that, that ICANN organised over the, the weekend, the Saturday and Sunday beforehand. Uh, also in Vienna, which did involve many of the campaigners in also being able to meet again for the for the first time, but because of COVID, also a lot of it was online. We were particularly pleased that one of the hubs sort of linking into Vienna that, that ICANN Australia organised was in Port Augusta, involving a number of dealers and, and nuclear test survivors, first, second, third generation who in a beautiful room decked out with skirts, desert peas and other desert flowers were actually able to beam into the conference and speak to the people in Vienna. And a lot of diplomats joined that meeting, so it was really helpful to have opportunities for engagement, for uh, informal discussions, to hear from the President of the Meeting of States parties, to hear from uh, Ambassador Elaine um, White, who presided over the negotiation and adoption of the treaty, other diplomats who, who were there, so really helped to reinforce the very strong engagement of diplomats, governments, academics, experts, civil society that has really featured so strongly in the whole process, so-called humanitarian initiative that led to the development and adoption of this treaty continued very strongly. Uh, this very strong collegial sort of partnerships that we're all in this together and we can all um, be stronger together. And then it was followed by a, a one-day meeting that Austria organised, the Austrian government organised, which was renewing and updating the evidence on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. One of the really strong things about this treaty is that it's really based on very solid evidence of, of what nuclear weapons do, of the fact that there's no meaningful humanitarian response possible if nuclear weapons were used and it's based on the real risks of them being used. So all of that evidence that underpins the treaty and also is really important for all states to hear about, to be updated about and to engage with whether or not they've joined the treaty was very strongly reinforced and updated in this one-day meeting before the meeting of states parties and happily the Australian delegation and must uh, delegations that joined the government meeting also joined that conference. Were there many young people at those meetings? Yes, a very pleasing number of very diverse uh, audience. There were people there from both from all over the world and a lot more present online. 
for a lot of the, the survivors and the older folk, it probably was sensible not to be there because of COVID risks. And there were, in fact, unfortunately, quite a few COVID cases appearing later in the week in Vienna, including amongst um, ICANN folks that were there. Yes, there was very strong engagement with young people. And particularly, there's been a sort of a new organisation set up youth for TPNW, TPNW being the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This was really the first conference that that group was actively represented in. So yes, young people were really actively involved, really at every level, including speaking uh, in the main meeting, speaking for various partner organisations and speaking for ICANN. And representation was, I think that's one of the things that almost everybody that went or that watched online was impressed by, was the strength of Pacific participation, both at a civil society level and and also uh, government level. And that's particularly significant because, you know, Pacific Island nations are not the biggest or the wealthiest and they don't have huge diplomatic representation. Many of them don't have any permanent representation in Vienna. They're all represented in New York. So having people in Vienna, you know, this is a significant commitment for them and often meant somebody having to travel from the Pacific. But the feeling about nuclear issues is really strong across the Pacific, largely because of the, as it is about climate change, of course, but as a result of the more than 300 nuclear test explosions that were conducted by the US, the UK and, and France in the Marshall Islands, in French Polynesia, in Christmas and Molden Islands, Johnson Island, of course, in Australia. Ten of the, the 50 nations that had ratified the treaty to get it into force uh, were from from the Pacific. And Pacific representation was really very strong from civil society, nuclear test survivors from French Polynesia, from the Marshall Islands, people from Fiji who'd been participated in the Christmas Island tests, uh, quite a few young people, especially from the Marshalls, so, yeah, really strong, very powerful voices, a side event that was chaired by the Kiribati hosted during the meeting. And Frank Bainimarama, the Prime Minister of Fiji, was in fact the only head of government uh, to speak in the opening ceremony with a very powerful statement that uh, was really unequivocal in, in condemning nuclear weapons and everything to do with it. It was a really impressive and valuable speech. So, yeah, Pacific... Uh, was really represented in very strong and vocal and you know eloquent testimony from young people, civil society, and and from uh, diplomats. And there's a message in there for Australia, isn't there, with so many nations in our area, not just the Pacific, who have signed and ratified. Absolutely. I mean, Australia is really sticks out like a large sore thumb in the region on this issue at present. Hopefully this will change with the new government, but but given its its many priorities and the large mess that's been left and the many challenging issues it has to deal with, it's understandable that this may not be the highest priority for the government to address. But pretty clear, and certainly the Australian delegation met with many of the Pacific delegations, Frank Marama in particular, made sure that he met with the Australian delegation, Kiribati ambassador, who had played a key role in much of the documentation and the plans for victim assistance that were approved at the meeting, very strong delegation. So the Australian delegation had a number of interactions with Pacific representatives and would have been in no doubt about the strength of feeling across the Pacific on this issue. And Timor-Leste 
was one of the three countries, additional countries that ratified the treaty just the day before the main meeting started. So now almost all of the ASEAN Association of Southeast Asian Nations to Australia's north, the vast majority of Pacific Island countries that are able to, that are not sort of bound up in post-colonial arrangements or military arrangements with the United States. Uh, pretty much all of the others in the Pacific are on board. New Zealand, of course, is a, is a real champion and leader here. So, yes, Australia will be hearing very strongly and consistently from Pacific leaders that the two issues that we really expect, a change of policy and some serious action from your government. Let's move on to the 23rd of June. What's being called the Vienna Action Plan? A realistic action plan that breaks new ground. Sounds pretty impressive to me. The map went really well. It was, um, in a whole lot of respects, the, the content, like what came out of it, for a three-day meeting, surprisingly strong and detailed content. So there's a very strong political declaration of determination of the states to promote and implement this treaty and live up to their obligations under the treaty to, to promote all countries to, to sign and ratify it and to work to implement its its various obligations. So a really strong declaration that I think is probably the strongest condemnation of nuclear weapons that's really ever come from a, a multilateral UN meeting. It's really, really worth a read, very impressive and, and very movingly delivered by the President uh, and I should have comment from, from Austria. Then also they established this action plan, which is pretty impressive too, actually. It's got about 50 different actions, um, many of them, you know, with who and when, um, clear timelines and areas of responsibility. One of the things that drove all of this was that because the nations that at present are members of this treaty generally are not the richest or the biggest, you know, their capacity is rather limited. We don't have for this treaty yet a big organisation like the Chemical Weapons Convention does, for example, where the, the organisation for the prohibition of chemical weapons, you know, there's a couple of hundred smart lawyers and chemists and people in The Hague who are employed whose day job it is to implement and promote this treaty. We don't have this treaty yet. It's really important that the work of the treaty continues between the formal meetings. So the action plan is specifically designed to do that and there are a number of, of working groups that were set up with responsibilities for particular countries to lead them on particular topics that every country can participate in, but there's also a timeline, like within two or three months they have to nominate somebody. The regularity of meetings is specified, and different countries taken on different roles. So, for example, South Africa and Malaysia are together leading the working group that's working on universalising the treaty. Kazakhstan and Kiribati are both states that have borne the brunt of nuclear weapons testing continuing to lead the work on the so-called positive obligations, the victim assistance and environmental cleanup, the actual disarmament and verification provisions of the treaty. That working group is being led by Mexico and New Zealand. And importantly, because you know one of the persistent, although completely mischievous and false misrepresentations of the treaty from those who don't like it, is that it somehow interferes with or conflicts with or undermines the non-proliferation. There's a group specifically set up to work on the complementarity of this treaty with other treaties, and that's chaired by Ireland and Thailand. And the choice of Ireland is particularly significant because Ireland is the state that, that really brought the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty into life. 
There's also Chile was appointed to take specific responsibility for the gender provisions of the treaty, and they also agreed to appoint a scientific advisory group to sort of continue that very strong evidence base to drive and inform treaty processes. Um, so there were very clear timelines about the work in, in all of those areas. It's a really good combination of, of sort of specificity, of sharing the work of working, you know, despite fairly limited resources by sharing it around and dividing the labouring efficiently and by being very inclusive. So ICANN and the Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement will be able to participate in all of those meetings and other experts and civil society organisations will be able to serve as as appropriate. So it continues this very efficient and inclusive process and I think one of the reasons why it was such a robust and good document is because there had been very good preparatory work done so that the amount of work that remained to be done during the meeting itself was really quite limited. There was just some sort of final tweaking of details. All of the substantive work had been prepared through really very inclusive consultative processes led by different states before this meeting, which of course is how good diplomacy works. You try and sort out the major conflicts and issues beforehand so that the meeting can take things forward rather than be uh, beset by groundwork or dividends. And I have to say the process was incredibly imp impressive too, Jan. It was, um, you know, every decision was made by consensus, which is remarkable in a group of such diverse nations. How was the issue of Ukraine and Russia and the threat of using nuclear weapons discussed? Pretty much every national statement that was made, uh, every country that spoke was very clear in its condemnation of the invasion and of the nuclear threats that have been associated with it. And I think the level of displeasure that Russia felt was demonstrated by a statement that the Russian Foreign Ministry released the day after the meeting closed that was scathing and dismissive of plan, you know, completely extraordinary statement claiming that Russia had never made or never would make nuclear threats, trying to suggest that, you know, this treaty was somehow unhelpful or negative, whereas Russia is, is really flaunting not just the non-proliferation treaty, but the UN charter of which it's, it's supposed to be one of the depositories, um, and international law very comprehensively. So the issues around the war weren't specifically discussed, except I think it really there was really universal condemnation in virtually every statement made. That was very clearly heard by Russia. They had no friends amongst the 83 nations in that room. But really the whole effort of the treaty to strengthen global rejection of nuclear weapons, um, to shore up the legal landscape and countries complying with it, and progress the elimination of nuclear weapons uh, was given very much sort of impetus and heart by the, the level of concern uh, about this really extraordinarily dangerous situation that we're in with the Russian invasion and the associated nuclear risks and threats, which are really taken us to at least back to the you know the height of the missile crisis in terms of global nuclear risk. So I think that was one of the reasons why the meeting was so cohesive and strong and united. Just finally, Tillman, I'd say that those who participate in the planning and implementing of these conferences need a good pat on the back. Absolutely. Yeah, look, it was from the point of view of the, the Austrian government team, 
the United Nations Office for Disarmed Affairs, all of the many countries who prepared, helped prepare the, the groundwork for this meeting, and of course, the, all of those countries who, despite pressure from you know some of the largest and most powerful states in the world not to join this treaty, followed the courage of their convictions and have. And I think it it sets the next stage for the treaty uh, very strongly. And the next meeting is already set. It's set for the end of November in New York next year, presided over by Mexico. And the next meeting after that will be in Kazakhstan. There's a very clear plan ahead. So, yes, and, and from a civil society point of view, there was also lots of comments about the positive and constructive and great roles that I can played in, in supporting the meeting and in, in lots of good ideas that were put both in the preparation as well as during the meeting itself. And for all of those who enabled people like me who, do, who weren't able to go to Vienna but to, you know, to join all of it every night of last week and really be essentially almost as good as being in the room. Uh, of course, it's never quite as good as being there in person, but, but it was a lot safer. Now, you'll have to give me a name for the rooster because I'll have to name him in the interview. Yeah, the lead rooster here who's more trying to hush up the young ones than making a racket himself is called Alfonso. All right, I'll include him in the interview. <laughs> well, thank you once again. Uh, you're very welcome. Thanks for, thanks for your continuing interest in these issues. Yeah, I mean, the media coverage, you know, you'd think that this meeting happening and Australia going and, it, you know, a very significant change of tune from the government, you know, you'd think, you know, the media would, would take some interest, but the mainstream media, but it was, um, yeah, we did get some pretty good coverage, but also some very disappointing rejections of op-eds and things. I don't know what you have to do, but, but so, yeah, it's, it's really important to try and get the message out to people. Tireless anti-nuclear campaigner, Tillman Ruff. Kofias are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kofias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kofia to an array of modern designs, all scarves are $35 each. Explore the range and order online, or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kofias.org.au. That's k-u-f-i-y-a-s.org.au. A 3CR supporter. CR Radio Thon Fundraiser, 3 to 7 p.m. Saturday, 23rd of July. Uprise Radio and Stick Together join forces bringing you an afternoon of discussion and music. Climate, capitalism and the future. Zelda Grimshaw from Blockade Australia. Dr Colin Long, sustainability campaigner from Victoria Trades Hall. And Anthony Kelly from Melbourne Activist Legal Service. Followed by tunes from local legends, Liz Thomas and Maxine Vink. 
followed by Sooty Owls. Refreshments, raffle and fun. Climate, capitalism and the future. Uprise Radio and Stick Together event. 3CR fundraiser. Saturday, July the 23rd, 3 to 7pm. Black Spark Cultural Centre, 253A St George's Road. Tram 11 will get you there. Stop 30. $10 solidarity. No one turned away. Similarities between the State of Israel and the Indian regime might not be immediately obvious, apart from the fact that both are extreme right-wing regimes. But today... Lecturer at RMIT University, Benoit Kampmark, focuses on one vicious similarity, collective punishment of oppressed minorities and those who criticise the government by demolishing the homes of an individual which punishes the entire family. Benoit, this form of collective punishment is well known and frequently practised by the Israeli occupying forces in Palestine and also in Gaza, how long has it been practiced in India, and how widespread is it? Well, it's uh, as, as you point out, of course, this particular sort of uh, collective punishment, which is a favorite of the authorities in, in Israel, especially in the occupied territories, of course, of citing irregular building permits or lack of permits altogether, is something that's um, been used now in India for actually fairly recently, in states that are run by the BJP party, which is the governing party of India, the party of Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and uh, the BJP in, for example, states such as Uttar Pradesh have uh, maintained uh, their control by what amounts to essentially silencing uh, dissidents, uh, types, protesters, and so on, of who so happen to be Muslim as well. So many of these critics of uh, the BJP have been targeted specifically by public authorities who cite the lack of uh, proper building certificates and so on, whereas in actual fact, well, in India, it's a very common thing for many buildings not to have the certification or the permits, but there is a disproportionate interest in demolishing the buildings of Muslim activists such as Javed Mohammed, and it was a very prominent figure in Uttar Pradesh. Well, tell us about Javed. Well, he's, he's a, a prominent figure in the welfare party in India. He's been an active, you know, he's been a very active uh, critic uh, over time against Modi. He's been also an active critic against the uh, governing authority in the state of Uttar Pradesh. So, you know, he's also, uh, his daughter, in fact, is also a very notable activist uh, in, in various causes. So being also Muslim and being also participants broadly, in uh, responding to agitation by the BJP, we need to remember that Javed Mohammed was uh, accused of being part of protests in response to derogatory remarks made about the Prophet by various BJP officials. And so in instigating or in organizing these protests, some of which turned violent, uh, Javed was uh, essentially targeted as being responsible for that. So what the authorities did was essentially say that these ringleaders, if you like, of various protests that took place in Uttar Pradesh should be dealt with accordingly. But it's not sanctioned by the law, is it? Or isn't it? No, no. Well, what is uh, the thing is, 
it's a usual thing with having a few faces when it comes to the law. Many legal authorities in India, in India have said that this is uh, illegal to simply, of course, to, uh, turn up with a bulldozer without due notice, without due process, and demolish a person's house. Uh, and the Supreme Court uh, itself, the Indian Supreme Court in the 1980s, made it very clear that you need to go through processes before initiating such a drastic action. You need to give the occupant due notice. You need to give the occupant a chance, for example, to make good or, or to answer any claims of uh, you know, that the regulations have not been followed and so on. And this has not been done in these particular BJP-controlled states where the chief ministers are running riots with these bulldozers. So it's it's um, so the legal authorities are clear that you can't just do what happened with uh, Javed Muhammad's house. And in Javed's case, what was interesting was that he was not given the notice that the authority supposed the planning authority there supposedly gave him. They claimed they gave him notice. They actually had not. They just gave him a notice literally the day before demolition, a notice that was put on his door in the evening prior to the day of demolition. So there was no due process followed there at all. You mentioned the 1980s then, is that correct? Yes, that's right, yes, yes. So it's been going on for a long time? Demolition is part of, it's not that demolition is off the cards. I mean, some buildings are, you know, considered dangerous, problematic, they don't follow the rules, regulations, so they can be if they don't follow municipal laws and so on. But the specific use of the bulldozer, if you like, as this political oppressive symbol is a fairly recent thing because authorities have come to the conclusion now that they can use this, especially with the BJP, they can use this as a political symbol. And for those uh, individuals who claim that this is not the case, they just need to look at the comments of the Uttar Pradesh chief minister, who's, I mean, he's openly called a bulldozer baba, and a bulldozer father, and he's openly tweeted images featuring himself with a bulldozer, promising more demolitions. So he's particularly ecstatic about the whole thing. Is there a political backlash against these practices? There is. The, the thing is, of course, in the complex society, it, is, it really depends where you are. There, there's certainly protests against this, but, you know, it, it's a very, it's becoming dangerous to do this sort of thing, certainly in the BJP-run states. So, so even though there are protests, and there have been, they're not given the same airtime and the same emphasis as they should be. So, for example, a lot of criticism has been leveled at the uh, India Congress Party for not paying enough attention to this and suggesting that uh, its leader, Al Gandhi, is actually more focused on other scandals rather than focusing on this one. So uh, it has been said that certain political parties are not paying enough attention to this, even though there have been protests against the, the bulldozer justice idea. Is this just another form of oppression of the Muslims in India? Well, I, I think you have to call it a form of uh, sectarian violence by other means. So, you know, this is not a, you know, the traditional, <laughs> dare I call it traditional, sort of communal violence you see on the streets. It's state-orchestrated violence using the veneer of law, which is something that's, of course, uh, very, very sinister and very dangerous because what is being done is to justify collective punishment of individuals, in this case people of a certain faith, on the basis that they have not complied with legal regulations. But if this was the case, then you'd probably have to demolish uh, you know, half of India's built infrastructure because they didn't comply with you know, various measures and so on. 
So are you saying that the only people who have been targeted in this way are Muslim? Those and, and some of the sympathizers and uh, activists who are sympathetic to their cause. So, you know, those who, you know, made some of them are Hindus, but also some are atheists. Some of them are not of any, uh, you know, religious affiliation. Then they, they are certainly, they're in the sights of the BJP. So I think you can sort of see this uh, in a broader picture as part of you know, Modi's broader clampdown on freedom of expression in India. And that's why, you know, it, it has been remarked before that Modi's time in office has seen a, a real rollback of freedom of expression in the country through tactics such as this. Yet this is the man who's lauded, particularly by politicians here in Australia, You're talking about Modi. Well, yes. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. He's seen as, a, you know, to use that old expression, a man one can do business with. And Modi is very, a very canny figure on the international stage. And he's, and of course, Australia has an interest at the moment, particularly given Australia's interest in such security arrangements as the Quad and the fact that India is now more engaged in the region. So, so the only positive things to say about uh, Prime Minister Modi is one tends to read or hear very little negative about him, uh, certainly in various press outlets here. And another person who the Australian media and politicians are falling over to eulogise is the is the now assassinated Shindo Abe, but he's got a dark history, hasn't he? Well, his history is associated with, of course, part of um, an understanding, for example, of Japan's history and how, you know, a, a, an uncomfortable relationship with apologising, of course, for you know its past and for the the atrocities committed uh, by the Japanese forces in mainland China during the war. So he. It's always been a problem with Japanese prime ministers as to how they reconcile and do this. And, and um, you know, Abe was one who was uh, quite patriotic, actually, about, you know, and intended to, even though he's uh, heralded as this great statesman, he also did have a, a streak, um, the, the, the little streak, if you like, of parochialism when it came to these things. So, uh, yes, deft dealing with many politicians, but I think, you know, as, as much as one can be critical of the Chinese response, I heard uh, former Prime Minister Tony Abbott say that uh, the the Chinese version of history here should not be used as a stick, and the Chinese should not more or less get along with it, but just be accepted as problematic because the Chinese the focus on memory here is very relevant, and Abbott's approach to it was, of course, to try to skirt around the issue, and that that is a very problematic thing. But in that sense, to be fair. Abe is not unusual. It's just because of his prominent profile, it was brought more to the fore. What about his alleged membership of what's been called the Moonies? Uh, yeah, well, well that, that's true. I mean, but, but this is precisely it. You know, he is, he's a, he is a very curious character who, um, yes, uh, who has this in a particular streak. And it's true. One, one can't get away from the fact that, you know, he nurses these particular things. But I... I you know, I think what, what has been so striking in, in you know, observing him over the years is that he has, well, a bit like Modi in a sense, and you know, a very skillfully, cleverly built up this image as, as being a statesman whilst, uh, you know, how shall I put it, papering over other things you know, that tend to be, you know, a jarring to the image. What are your thoughts on the Pyong Young Declaration 20 years ago? which he derailed, it was to provide aid and 
normal relations with North Korea in exchange for maintaining a moratorium on nuclear testing? Well, I mean, you know, the the declaration um, when it came to, to that you know, was was of course significant in its own way, but uh, but you know when it comes down uh, you know to the issue, yeah, I mean that's it's just one of those things that uh, well, one one has to sort of work around. But I, I, I again, you know, I think you know with the legacy here, one has to try to negotiate and work around this rather difficult thing. But yes, you no, know, this it is something that's of interest. And his great support for nuclear power, even after the Fukushima disaster? Yes, he's always been a fan of it. And the, the, the reality of it is, is that, well, because nuclear power remains such an important feature, not just of the Japanese context of its, uh, of its energy policy, but also because of its pride, is, is an important thing. It's a paradox, of course, because on the one hand, uh, Japan has this very strong anti-nuclear focus uh, connected with um, of course, the fact that it was the first country to suffer the bombings with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but but it's also important to note that the the significance here is that uh, Japan, like Australia, is very much an opponent of the the ban treaty, the nuclear weapons ban, treaty ban, uh, claiming that it undermines standard disarmament practice and also that nuclear deterrence is still important. So that's why. Japan and Australia are very much on the same page when it comes to claiming that the United States will extend its nuclear deterrence across the Pacific and protect them as allies. I think it's a very dangerous view. It's not evidenced by anything. You wouldn't want to see it evidenced by anything, but it is a very dangerous view. You'd like to be a fly on the wall at the, the funeral? It's interesting. It, it, in a sense, it would be very interesting because uh, these can be very fascinating ceremonial occasions. But uh, I mean, what, one of the things to remember about Abe was that he was he was unusual in the sense that he was so durable. And over that time, of course, he managed to cultivate various relations and so forth. But uh, but yes, I like other uh, funerals and occasions. Uh, this will also command its interest. But uh, you know, we always have to be careful at the moment where eulogies are passed out because these are bound to be papering over cracks and bound to be somewhat deceptive as to the real picture and complexity of a figure. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Anytime, John. Thank you. Dr. Vinoy Kempmark, who lectures at RMIT University here in Melbourne. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. When I was new to Melbourne, I found a food not bomb supply on the road and I had like this feast with a carrot and carrots are my favourite vegetable. Yeah, I think they were asking for help doing stuff and I got in touch. We, I guess, rescue food. That would otherwise go to waste. I like the aspect of sharing food and um, not making anyone feel obligated to pay anything for it. We make a real point at Food Not Bombs of involving 
everyone who wants to be involved in whichever part they want to be involved in. For more information, go to fnbmelb.noblogs.org. Food Not Bombs is a 3CR supporter. Two weeks in sunny Cuba, escaping from the floods and the cold of Sydney. That's what Dr. Tim Anderson was enjoying until recently. Tim, you weren't there for a specific conference. Who were those who joined that conference with you? I organised a group of us to go from a group called Sajamo, which is a, a gathering, a group of people supporting the choice of resistance in the Middle East. And the group that ended up going to Cuba were all from the Levant countries, from Syria, Palestine and Lebanon, basically, although the, the group itself includes people from North Africa and Iran and so on. But there was 10 of us there. And they were all involved in supporting the resistance to imperialism and Zionism in the Middle East. And they'd also recognised that it was a very similar process going on in Latin America, particularly um, spearheaded by Bolivia, Venezuela and Cuba. So I encouraged them to go and talk to the Cubans and some of the organisations there so we could start to share some networks, basically. And what was the situation in Cuba? It's, it's very difficult. There's extreme shortages. Um, there's, they've come out of a period where, as you know, the Trump administration tightened the blockade on Cuba and Venezuela, and then COVID came along and basically killed Cuba's tourism industry. So from a, a peak of um, in the post-Obama period of 5 million tourists a year, Cuba lost pretty much all that income, and then its, its main source of um, subsidised energy, Venezuela, was under blockade as well, and Venezuela's only economy is only just starting to recover from last year. So actually the situation is very bad in Cuba at the moment, but at the same time there's a lot of new infrastructure for the tourist industry and some new possibilities in the health services, which is really their main economic future there. So things are pretty tough in Cuba, but I'm hoping that things will improve um, more rapidly than they did after the hard times they had back in the 90s, for example. Did you meet with other people from Latin American countries in Cuba, or was it just Cubans? It was mainly Cubans, but there are always others there, and in particular one of the groups, the Network in Defence of Humanity, is a, it's a global group, but it's mainly a Latin American group, and it includes many left intellectuals and social movements from Latin America. So Cuba is a hub, really, for a lot of the foment, um, intellectual and cultural foment in Latin America. So we weren't able to you know, do a tour of, of all of Latin America because it's huge, but... In Cuba, you do get to see a lot of the history of, of the continent, of the subcontinent. Where was the meeting or meetings? We were in Havana almost exclusively we, for all of the meetings, basically. So we were hosted by the Cuban Institute with friendship with the people. And we went and visited a lot of particular Cuban institutions like the, the Health Cooperation Institution, the Cuba, BioCuba, which is their pharmaceutical product, um, some of the... Middle Eastern diplomats and the Palestinian students who were there studying medicine under scholarships from the Cubans, all in Havana. And was this their first trip to Latin America? In a couple of cases, they had been to Latin America before, but for most of them it was their first trip. Not mine, of course, but for most of them it was. What was on the agenda? Can you explain 
what you were talking about when you all got together? In the first instance, and from the from our host's point of view, our hosts were the, the Cuban Institute of Friendship with the People. Uh, it was an orientation to the Cuban reality and Cuban history. So we, that's why we visited a lot of Cuban institutions and got briefings on the history of the Cuban struggle for independence with more than six decades of economic blockade, which of course now more than 30 countries in the world are facing some version of that type of economic blockade, particularly countries like Syria where the economic blockade is, is extreme. There was a discussion of the, the commonality of a lot of these problems in, in, of resistance and of anti-imperialism facing this sort of hostility, but also because it was um, the first trip to Cuba of many of the people uh, in the group, they were spending some time just accustomizing themselves to the Cuban experience, seeing what was going on on the streets and, and trying to understand the Cuban reality. And how do you believe they understood it from their point of view? I think they did very much so because all of the people in the group, whether in Syria or Lebanon or Palestine, are subject to enormous pressures and economic warfare as well as different forms of terrorism and, and uh, other types of pressures. So they recognise that straight away. There's, there's really an instinctive identification of people who are under this, this type of enormous imperial pressure. It's something that a lot of people in Western countries don't appreciate that well because it's not really much to do with their lived experience. But if you're in Palestine or Lebanon or Syria with massive economic pressures and military attacks, you know, regular attacks by the US or by Israel or by their various proxies and the, the terrorist groups that they've set up to destabilize countries. When the Cubans start talking about a similar experience, it instantly rings a bell. So what do they take back home with them? What we all brought back home, I think, was that there are some links, some very strong sympathetic links. We've already made some links across those groups and are sharing information. Because, of course, there are people in other parts of the world who are strong activists in support of the rights of the Palestinians in particular, for example. So there are online communication links going on from the time that we left and attempts to, to recruit individuals into some of the, several of the, of the crossover sort of international groups that, that exist already in Latin America and in the Middle East. That's what we hoped and that's really what's come out of it. And I think what it falls to us now is to follow through on a lot of those links and develop, for example, the media links, the cultural links, because our group is essentially an intellectual, cultural, social movement group and that's the level at which we were talking to the Cubans on. In the past, what connections have there been between Cuba and those three countries that these people represented? You spoke about Palestinians being in Cuba, but what about Syrians and Lebanese? Are they connected in ways with Cuba at all? Yes, they are. I mean, there are... Well, first of all, of course, one of the things we were shown was that there's a very strong Arab component in, in Cuban culture both directly and through the Spanish. And, uh, you know, there are Arab cultural associations in, in Cuba, for example. But also um, there have been many Syrian students in Cuba, like the Palestinian. And uh, also there are very strong state relations, for example, between Cuba and Iran and Cuba and Venezuela and Syria, for example. So, there are, I mean, there are, as we speak, there are these sorts of collaborations in 
pharmaceuticals, the production of vaccines and medicines, for example. So at a state level, um, there's quite a lot going on. One of the most important things, I suppose, is the collaboration between Venezuela and Iran, both countries under economic warfare, but have been helping each other to deal with that type of warfare and reinitiating the Venezuelan refineries, which were broken down a couple of years ago, for example. So there is a fair bit of activity at that political level, but as I said, ours was more at the intellectual, cultural, media level. And where does it go from here? Well, as I said, the follow-up with those links, those links between groups, um, the development of uh, international networking groups uh, in support of anti-imperialism and and the right to resist, for example. There's already follow-up going on there in communicational links and media links, and that's the sort of thing that we want to keep going with. Did you speak to many people in Cuba apart from the organisations, the people in the organisations? Were you able to move around and just um, talk to people and get them to explain how they're feeling about the situation at the moment? Oh, sure, of course. You know, that's, um, Cuba's a very open society in that respect. You know, there's, we were staying in our second week in, a, in an Airbnb place. People in the street are very open in Cuba. They've been exposed to mass tourism since the 90s, basically. That collapsed with uh, blockades and with COVID for a few years. So now, for example, this year, Cuba tourism there now, but it's much less than it was a few years ago. It peaked at about 5 million tourists per year just a few years ago. And now, when we were there, the first half of this year, there was half a million tourists. So it's getting back to a rate of 1 million a year. So the Cubans have been dealing with this, and they're not hesitant to talk and to complain about everything. And even the officials, you know, are very, very open about saying the sort of economic hardship they're dealing with at the moment. But Cuba's been dealing with similar things for a very long time, too. That's the other side to that perspective. Can I talk to you for a few minutes, Tim, about the recent elections in Colombia? They now have a leftist yeah. president. How well do you think things are changing in Latin America for the left? Well, that's a very important move um, in Colombia in particular because Colombia, as you know, is a bastion of the extreme right. I mean, the extreme right, I mean, fascist right in Latin America. There are at least nine U.S. military bases there. It's been used as a base for destabilizing its its key neighbor, uh, Venezuela. And immediately there were some signs after the, the progressive ticket was elected, headed by Gustavo Petro, there were immediately some signs of relaxing of tensions on the border and some sorts of exchange is beginning even before Petro is is sworn in as president. I have to say I'm fearful of the lives of the the new government there because there's a very deep fascist narco state in in Colombia which is not going to go away just because of an election. So there's some serious challenges there. But it's a very good sign for Colombia and for and for Latin America generally. And you have to see it in a broader perspective too. There's a looks like there's a change coming in Brazil, which will be extremely important. So all of these shifts, uh, continental shifts, are very important. The Latin Americans themselves, uh, and the Latin American left in particular, I guess, but, uh, but also the right, are very keenly tuned into these sorts of changes and the implications they have. So I'll give you one example. When Cuba and Venezuela were at their peak in cooperating with um, neighbouring countries over health, education, 
energy security and so on, they persuaded the centre-right government in Honduras to join their bloc because the benefits were so massive. Then there was a coup against that centre-right government more than 10 years ago. But now, um, after some years, there's a progressive government in Honduras. You know, So the, the impact of having even centre-left governments there and even on centre-right governments as opposed to fascist governments is extremely important. And that the whole theme of Latin American unity is a very powerful one, which is one of the, the key legacies of Fidel Castro and Hugo Chavez. For example, I recall years ago they made a lot of efforts to try and ensure that Colombia, under a right-wing government, was part of the new continental bloc, CELAC, the community of Latin American Caribbean states. So even with right governments in Colombia and in Chile at the time, they regarded it, Chavez and Fidel Castro regarded it as very important to include them in this Latin American unity because of their common shared history and their common shared um, anti-colonialism. And would you say that the, the failure of the summit of the Americas is connected to this? Very strongly. It's very strongly connected. I mean, it's been the summit of the Americas and the, the institution, uh, the Washington-based institution, the Organization of American States, has been the subject of keen progressive criticism for a very long time. It's seen as a simply a project of Washington to dominate the rest of the Americas. You may recall that the attempt to create a so-called free trade area of the Americas was destroyed by Hugo Chavez, a coalition led by Hugo Chavez, more than 15 years ago in Argentina. Chavez even took a shovel to Argentina to, to bury it, to, to symbolically bury the so-called free trade area of the Americas, and in its place to create these, these new Latin American institutions such as the ALBA, UNASUR, the Union of South American Nations, and the CELIC, which is the largest one. So certainly the, the reaction to that summit, and of course it also reflects the, the consistency of each US regime. I mean, from the Latin American point of view, there's been very little change when, when governments in the U.S. switch from Republican to Democrat and back again, basically the hostility to the Cuban Revolution, the hostility to the Bolivarian Revolution in Venezuela are maintained and just the tactics change from time to time. So there is a, a shift going on in the continent at the moment and it reflects the declining influence of the U.S. in the Americas before we start talking about the rest of the world. Well, just to return to the Middle East or to the countries represented at your conferences, Lebanon, Palestine, yeah. Syria, what are your feelings about the possibilities of change or people just having more say in what they, their governments are doing and, and having a better life? Yeah, well, for me, there are very. I've always thought there are very important lessons from the Latin American experience, which, let's remember, is the, the oldest post-colonial experience. Most of the Latin American countries were liberated in the early 19th century. So we've got two centuries of post-colonial history. And one of the, the key themes, as I said before, was from Bolivar to Marti to Fidel Castro to Hugo Chavez was the uniting of those countries against very powerful imperial forces. And it's a very strong theme there that, that said you can't be a little power and resist big powers. You have to come together. Uh, many Latin American 
writers have written about this. And if you look at how the Middle East was carved up, uh, we'll just look taking the Levant as an example, how Lebanon was set up as a sectarian state by the French, set to fail. Syria fought for its independence, but have been under serious attack, and there's been several attempts to try and fragment it or to divide it into little ethnic statelets, for example. The carving up of Palestine by the British and handing over to a colonial project of, of dynasts back in the middle of the 20th century, all of those things were precisely uh, designed to divide and rule, as has been a key theme of empires for many, many centuries there. So that's why I say the historical processes in Latin America, I think, have some important lessons for the Middle East. And, of course, those lessons have been being drawn independently. In any case, you see a very strong military alliance now between Iran, Iraq, Syria, and important factions of Lebanon and Palestine, for example. That's something that the Israelis, for example, are very keen to attack. That's one of the main reasons why the Israelis, with the direct green light from the US, have been bombing Syria uh, repeatedly for several years now because they're, they're very desperate to try and prevent the, the rise of a very strong Iran-led coalition on the borders of occupied Palestine. So there are important historical parallels between the Middle East and Latin America in terms of strategies of the resistance, basically how they're going to deal with this constant attempt to divide and rule. And this is no more obvious than what's happening in Ukraine with the, with the propaganda of Russia in that area? Mm. Yeah, certainly. I mean, the, the encroachment of NATO up to the borders of Russia and the training of tens of thousands of soldiers, the, the placement of extreme nationalists, neo-Nazis on the border of Russia, those sorts of things pose a real threat to Russia and Russia's responded in the way that it had warned it would for, for many, many years. People shouldn't have been too surprised about that. In this case, the rationale was to protect themselves from what was what was and is effectively a failed state. I mean, Ukraine is, is effectively being, being carved up now, first of all with the coup of 2014 and then the Russian reaction to the, the extremism of the, of the Ukrainian regime backed by NATO. So there's a similar process going on there, but in, in the Eurasian continent, and this includes the Middle East, we have to step back and take a broader look here. The, the U.S., Washington in particular, is extremely keen to ensure that there are no new coalitions formed across the Asian-European continent. They're very worried about, of course, the role of China. They're very worried about the role of Russia, and they were concerned about the possible normalisation between Russia and the German economy, for example, which was happening through the, the gas links, the Nord Stream 2. Uh, for the time being, the war in Ukraine has effectively destroyed that. But it, it remains to be a distinct possibility for that to be resurrected uh, once the Ukraine situation is sorted one way or the other, that the US is very keen to preserve its role in Asia and in Europe. But in reality, the US is an American power, effectively even though, as I said, losing its influence in the broader Americas, in, the, in the, the group of 35 nations that constitute the Americas, but it wants to hang on to that post-World War II role it had in dominating parts of Asia and dominating 
the Europeans. So all of these continental perspectives need to step back and look at why there's so much conflict in the world in the world today. There's a recent report in the Intercept which pointed out that since 2017, the US has been involved in 23 separate proxy wars in the world, mostly in Africa, the Middle East, and parts of Asia, basically. And these are all wars that are designed to look like they're not really about wars of aggression trying to reinforce the role of the US, but rather trying to have a, a separate pretext, some sort of causes belly, some sort of humanitarian pretext or counter-terrorism pretext. But they're all really linked into the strategic ambitions of the declining big power we have in the world today. I mean, that's why there are so many, so many conflicts around the world, and Ukraine is simply the latest of those. The trouble is that as it's dying, it's taking so many people with it. I think that's right. I think that, that it's a dangerous time that we live in, and of course, maybe nothing illustrates that better than the, the Ukraine. The Ukrainian people are being used. Are being this European Commission president, uh, the German woman, was saying that. Ukrainians are willing to die for the European perspective. Well, unfortunately, they are dying in a hopeless war, and the, the Europeans and NATO have been telling Ukraine, don't talk to Russia, you're going to defeat Russia. An absurd proposition, a totally absurd proposition, a, a terrible thing for the Ukrainian people by itself before we start talking about the Russians. The Europeans themselves are, are facing the cost of this now. There's uh, record high inflation in Europe. Um, there's a recession coming in the U.S., but these warlike ambitions are because, of course, you can declare an economic war on Cuba or Syria, for example, little countries. But when you declare economic war on Iran and Russia and Venezuela, you know, the biggest three of the biggest energy exporters in the world, then, of course, it's going to come back with the people who are carrying out this sort of war. Just finally, Tim, you had a, a drop-off to Madrid on the way home. How many uh, of the NATO people did you manage to catch up with? No, I didn't. I, I saw some of the, the remnants of their entourage and the, the, the militarised forces there. The Spanish people are going through a very difficult time at the moment and huge conflict with them trying to keep migrants out of the country too. You may have seen that a couple of dozen African people were killed at the border between Morocco and the little Spanish enclave called Malia there. So the, the Spanish state is very heavily militarised. There were big uh, demonstrations against the NATO conference there. There, there remains a solid more than 40% of the Spanish population is against Spain participating in NATO, but nevertheless, you know, they, the opinion makers have managed to play that for many decades. I, I was in Spain 35 years ago, and there were big rallies against NATO at that time. The type of wars that are being carried on have led to the militarisation of the European states too, and, and they have important consequences for their own population. So it's something I think is, is as you say, it's declining power. It's the politics of a declining power. Over the top of this, it's the role of the US and its paranoia, its obsession with uh, other big powers like Russia, like China, like Iran, and there seems to be no solution to that until those ambitions are definitively defeated in certain parts of the world. And it's just the weaponisation of the whole world now. And the people in all countries are suffering because the money's been taken out of 
social areas for weapons. Exactly, exactly. That's why that, when you say that, it always reminds me of the, the role of the late Fidel Castro who said that we were sending doctors, not bombs, and even through all this crisis, the Cubans have, and through their own economic shortages, scarcities, they keep sending doctors to other parts of the world. During the COVID, COVID pandemic, the Cubans had missions of doctors in more than 40 countries. Uh, when there was Ebola, they sent doctors. They've always drawn attention to that through a practical example, and that's one of the other reasons why I think it's important for people to go and see for themselves that the Cubans, they don't live in luxury. They, they lack a lot of things. They don't lack health care and, and education, but they're living under extreme shortages. But in those circumstances, they still practice what they preach, and that's what's really inspiring to me about the Cubans. Okay, Tim, well, welcome home and keep up the good work, I suppose I could say. Thanks very much, Jan. Thank you. Dr Tim Anderson, back to the reality of the cold and wet Eastern Australia. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.